This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Hello and welcome back. It's good to have you. Today we're talking about fear of hope. I'm saying it now because we don't explicitly say it very quickly in the episode. I should note that we do talk about some fairly heavy topics. We're talking about suicide. Sometimes we hedge on substance abuse. But overall, the message is one of hope and moving forward and how we change and how fear of hope is something that stops that. Anyway, just thought I should give this little warning here and hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Contest Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to have our most esteemed guest yet, somebody that we've talked about his book a few times and have greatly appreciated his writing. It's Dr. Ross Ellenhorn. Ross, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind giving us just a brief background for you, Ross? Sure. I've got a bunch of ways to give my background, and I pick one from all of them. So I'll pick the longer version, which is that my background is... I went to a alternative hippie school for my grade school, and I grew up in a college town that was also a town for the aerospace industry. So it was like a suburb for the aerospace industry in California. And I was marked as kind of a special kid in the school. Like I was very creative. It was a creative school. And I really kind of, the, the teachers kind of glommed on to supporting me. And then I moved over to a more aerospace industry kind of junior high. And I was immediately diagnosed as having a severe learning disability. Right. And at that time, that meant probably, you know, being removed from the school and put into a special school and things like that and pretty much destroyed me. You know, it was a really profound experience to be defined as sort of an outsider and dysfunctional in the very environment where I, you know, the function was to learn. And two things happened. One is I began to define myself as a stoner. It was my way of kind of giving myself an identity that gave me sort of a reason why I wasn't learning, that I was just sort of too cool to learn. And I also started to find myself as disabled. I would tell people I can't do that because I'm disabled. <sighs> and that profound experience has sort of influenced my career. So I have a program in New York City, in Boston, and in L.A., and we work with people that have been diagnosed as having a severe psychiatric issues, but we really focus on the social trauma, medicalized versions of of care and how they really injure people by defining them as sick and broken. Mm. And so in some ways, that place has become this kind of monument to that trauma that I experienced. And during my time kind of developing as a social worker and, and moving towards this program, I began to work with people that were in and out of the hospital all the time, people that were really kind of considered chronically mentally ill. And I ran a group. And the group, I'd ask the group, what gets in the way of change? And over a five-year period, rarely did anybody say in that group, what gets in the way of change is my diagnosis. It was always this issue of kind of raising expectations, getting excited again. And then the kind of terror of disappointment. And I took that and I created this thing called the 10 Reasons Not to Change. And those are based on this idea of what it means to fear hope. And that concept of fear of hope became something that I've been researching with the team at Rutgers University. Very nice. Very nice. We, and we love this concept, by the way. Phil and I have been all over this book since last summer, pretty much. And we were wondering, could you define fear of hope in your own words for everyone here? Yeah. So first of all, to understand hope, hope is not 
optimism. The best way to understand hope is hope is the emotion that drives you through uncertainty. Mm. And that's what makes hope like this fundamentally important part of motivation. Because when you're in a pursuit of a goal, you're uncertain. And hope is the thing that's driving you from one place to the other. It's that I'll be there at the other side. It's not that everything's going to be beautiful on the other side. And if you've had experiences of profound disappointment, hope becomes terrifying because it drives you through this uncertainty and then it leaves you in this place of pain because you didn't get the thing that you were hoping for. And hope generates two things. It makes the thing that you're heading towards more important than it was before you hoped. So it's your birthday, your parents ask you what you want for your birthday, you can't come up with something. The minute you say bike, bike becomes a super important thing. And now you're a person that if you don't have a bike, you're lacking bike. (laughs) So hope always sets you up with the potential of being less than. If you don't hope, you don't have that experience of being less than. And I also think that this profound experience of disappointment matches early infancy experiences of disappointment. And what it is, is it's the experience I'm not getting my needs met. I'm not getting nurtured. And so the disappointment you have when you hope is the feeling of helplessness. I can't manage my life. And so fear of hope is I don't want to have that experience. And so how do you avoid that? Well, you avoid it by not changing, not moving forward. You hold yourself back because every time you move forward, you have to hope to move you forward and you're heading towards that disappointment. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty good definition of fear of hope. And what we're discovering at Rutgers is that people that have high hope and high fear of hope are the people that are the most perturbed. If you're a hopeless person of high fear of hope, what's there to be afraid of? Right. The people that really are having a struggle are people that actually measure well for hope and measure high for fear of hope. Right. And that does remind me of the case study of Mary in the book where she has very high hopes for herself and her career, and yet was profoundly disappointed. And so it led to a lot of ruminations and just thoughts about the past and what happened and trying to make sense of it and really feeling stuck in that. And so it's not just a kind of a mediocrity that results, but it's deep mental health issues. And then you talked, you got to suicide and all that with her. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. She's, she's a good example of this because these were actually events that happened to her. It wasn't like she was born with this psychiatric issue. Mm. And I wouldn't say that she had mental health issues. I would say she had existential issues. She's saying, how do I kind of get through life after I've had these experiences of profound disappointment? And that ruminating she's doing, that's what we're finding. It's called counterfactuals that people who have high hope and high fear of hope have lots of counterfactuals. I wish I had done that. If I only had done that, if this had only happened, Mm. Yeah. And in some ways, that's hope talking. Hope saying, you know, this could have worked out, right? So they they become kind of obsessed with these things. The shoulds and the coulds and the musts and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just to make sure I'm on the same page, the Mary we're talking about is the one that was the athlete who injured herself against her coach's recommendations because of mono, was it? Yeah, yeah. And what's really interesting about that is she learned to distrust her emotions is, is a big part of that. And it's a big part of fear of hope, it sounds like, is distrust in one's own intuition and emotional experience because in the past it led them to a disappointing Result. And so a cognitive behavioral approach, like CBT kind of classic mental health approaches to these to anxiety and depression, would focus on the thoughts and trying to change the thoughts. And what you're doing is, is very different. And I like it because it doesn't gaslight someone into further distrusting their own emotions. You know, what are your thoughts on cognitive approaches to mental health issues as opposed to kind of these more affective approaches that you take? Yeah. My approaches are all relational. You know, there's this thing called common factors research that shows that. All the models are BS. There are 30% of changes. Are you in an environment where there's a compassionate person in the room with you building a collaborative relationship? So it all comes down to that. And 
A person who's fearing hope really needs that. They don't need a person who's judging them when the thing doesn't work out. They need a person who's compassionately understanding why they might stay the same. And I think you saw my book. I'm really trying to take a compassionate and understanding view for staying the same. That staying the same is a logical choice a person's making. And you know, what they're doing is really interesting. What they're doing, I shouldn't say they, what we are doing, because we all do it. What are you protecting when you stay the same? What are you protecting when you're afraid of disappointment? You're protecting hope. Mm. You're trying to not have whatever hope you have in it get disturbed. So in some ways, staying the same is a beautiful thing. You're doing something self-loving the best you can because you don't want that hope being chipped away at. You're protecting yourself, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing you said about Mary that's really important in the research is that I said earlier that fear of hope and high hope lead to counterfactuals. That's sort of true. They actually lead towards distrusting your emotions And that leads to counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because this is about not another religious word. This is about not having faith in yourself. I was going to ask about that, your distinction between faith and hope. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of versions of faith, right? And what I'm talking about is is something very close to what's called self-efficacy, which is I have self-belief. I believe I can do this. And that's usually based on your feelings, on your gut. And if you stop trusting your gut, you you lose faith in yourself. But self-efficacy is... I can do this. That's really important because if I'm going to risk hoping and disappointment, I got to be able to have faith I can handle it at the end if there's disappointment. Right, right. And so faith is the thing that really you can work on in therapy. You actually can't get people to hope. You can get them to have faith in themselves. And that's that's the area of work. Yeah. And the process by which you would do that is first and foremost, having a compassionate, non-judgmental point of view because shame and blame is counterproductive to that goal. It actually decreases someone's faith in themselves if you start blaming them for it. They're like, yeah, I guess I can't be trusted even more. But the power of small steps and kind of respecting their, meeting them where they're at. I mean, as an addiction counselor, this is foundational to everything I do in my work using motivational interviewing. And so I'm right on board with this kind of more humanistic respecting the person where they're at, viewing staying the same as self-protective. And you call it the possum's pose. It's very interesting, your use of metaphor there. How would you describe the possum's pose? I think we've been talking about it. but Yeah, this, this actually comes from a very important psychoanalytically trained psychiatrist who really handed us a different version of what's called mental illness. And his name was R.D. Lang. And he was a really profoundly important thinker. And he talked about this place where the most protective thing you can do is to freeze, is to stop, to not move forward, because of all the potential bad things that can happen if you move forward. And for me, that really fits with this idea. I don't want to face this helpless feeling. And so staying the same is the best I can do. And so I'm going to kind of shut down and stay right here. It's a very understandable, protective position. Yeah. And I find that that's actually in the current situation, like in North America, like in tail end of the pandemic, I, I hope. It's interesting that some people seem to think that taking action is risky, but staying the same is always a baseline level of risk. Nothing is changed, despite the fact that this isn't entirely true, because obviously the situation is always changing. And if we keep doing the same approach, it may be less and less effective or even more dangerous as we continue. Do you factor this kind of thing into the theory nowadays? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. Well, every day that you don't do something that's making you feel alive, you're taking a major risk at the blessing you've been given. So staying the same is just like such a risky thing to do. It's just really dangerous. It's understandable, but it's risky behavior. It's really risky behavior. To live an empty life because you were afraid of hoping is taking significant risk. The real risk is not taking risks, in other words. Yeah, very much so. It's just a risk that hides itself in comfort. Just like, you know, 
Conformity is like this just profound risk. Authoritarianism is a profound risk. Buying the newest product is a profound risk. You know, fads are profound risk. Giving up your inner creativity for the purpose of staying the same and being like everybody else is just really risky behavior. Right. It's like the reference you made to Fleabag in the book where you talked about how they just wanted to be told what to do, right? Yeah, that show, the writing on that show was profound. By her, right? By that actress. Yeah, it really profound. Yeah. I've heard great things. It's on my watch list to ever expanding. <laughs> but it seems like a growing trend in the world these days of just wanting more stability. I always kind of curious about how the political psychology research is going these days because these huge events, it seems like people are finding that with uncertain times, they're seeking certainty in somebody telling them what to do. And so authoritarianism, as you mentioned, is on the rise, it feels like. Yeah. Right. So I don't know if you guys know this old theory. That's a very important theory called terror management. Sounds familiar. Vaguely know it. Yeah. Which is basically that when people get more afraid for their lives, they become more conservative. Mm, yes. And they begin to kind of retract from the world in ways. They want more certainty in their lives at that point. They can't kind of bear uncertainty. And so they begin to really kind of stop being playful about life in very serious ways. And so that, that does feel like what's going on in some ways. Largely. I'm just curious, though, when you say that, it makes me think about how people who can't afford taking risks take the most risks. I think it was some gambling research to do with that. Steve, are you familiar with that? Not familiar with what you're referring to, but that's often the case. I mean, you had to have less to lose. You're willing to bet it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not good. But like, how do you find those are at odds? Like, how do, how do you square that? I mean, well, one is just about risk. The other one is about existential risk. And so what terror management theory is about is like, you're going to die. Like bad things are about to happen that are serious like that. And people become more conservative, more authoritarian at those points. I can understand that there's another element, which is people want to just go out and party because it's like things are ending, right? But there is this element towards kind of congealing at that point, you know? This reminds me of Fromm's Escape from Freedom. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of my stuff's based on Fromm. Yeah. Steve, do you want to elaborate that? You're just <laughs> dropping a reference that people may not know. I haven't read the book in a little while, but it reminds me of those themes of, of how people want to escape freedom because freedom is uncertainty and in a more existential level rather than kind of political, you can take it in a political sense, but existentially you're now responsible for the decisions. And so in the freedom to choose, you also bear the responsibility. That's a huge part of your concept, it sounds like. It's kind of this very, almost like Jean-Paul Sartre. Who's also dropped frequently. <laughs> yeah, that very existential kind of agency perspective. Can you talk more about that? And maybe in the purple crayon example, because that's one that you're really fond of. <laughs> you have a tattoo of that too, don't you? I, I do. And I, and I have a, another book by Harper Collins coming nice. out on Just Harold. So let me go to the story of Exodus. And I'm going to that because Fromm was a Talmudic scholar and then a psychoanalyst and then a Marxist psychoanalyst. So he's a really interesting guy, but he refers to Moses a lot. But think about this. So Moses goes up Mount Sinai to build these Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are going to be the things that guide people, right? So there's like choice in it. There are laws, right? There's going to be law. And he's basically saying like, folks, do not make any idols you bow down to while I'm gone. Like, that's just out of the question. We're, we're done with idols in our religion. We're going to be a law-based religion. So now the person that everybody sort of feels holds them together, their leader is gone, and they're hanging out, and he's not returning. And all of a sudden, they start melting down their jewelry, and they build this golden calf, and they start bowing down to it, right? That's a remarkable story of what people do when they feel unsafe. They begin to take the choice within them, what empowers them in life, 
and they place it on an object outside of them. And the Marx would call that alienation. I'm taking my own powers and I'm putting it on something outside of myself. Is it similar to bad faith from Sartre? Yep. Yep. And what Sartre also called a spirit of seriousness. Yeah, exactly. Similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On a group level. Yeah. Absolutely. Nice. And in terms of the Marty and the purple crayon, I mean, you, I wrote a whole book on this. Do you mind kind of explaining the story and, and its relevance to this? Yeah, yeah, sure. Or Harold, Harold and the purple crayon? Harold, yeah. Her- Harold, purple crayon, Harold, yeah. yes. So Harold and purple crayon is from 1955, which is exactly when Eric Fromm was writing. It's exactly the same year that the largest civil rights protest happened in the United States. It was the year that Martin Luther King became famous. It was a year where John Coltrane first put together his quintet. It's the year where Allen Ginsberg read Howell. It's this year of profound struggles over how do we stay original and how do we fight for what Martin Luther King called the sacredness of human personality. This idea that there, and, and that comes also from transcendentalism in the United States, this idea that the closer you can get to your own originality, the closer you are to God. It's kind of a beautiful, modern concept of religion. Martin Buber talked about it. Paul Tillich talked about it. These are 1955 guys, too. And so Harold is like this little story for kids about this boy who draws his world. He's got this purple crayon, and he goes through life, and he draws his world. But he ends up always kind of drawing things, and then things fall apart. He's got to save himself from it. So he draws a dragon to protect this tree that forgets the dragon, something he drew. So there you got bad faith, right? I drew it, but now it's attacking me. His hand starts to shake. He falls into this ocean of anxiety, begins to drown. Then he pulls himself up. There's moments where he falls off a cliff and you're kind of, he's kind of dealing with nothingness. There's moments of profound loneliness, but all along he keeps it being able to draw. So it really is this message of how important it is to take an artistic view of your life that I'm drawing this and that I'm creating this, you know, and yet it's not individualistic that the more you're original, the more you're actually joining the world. You're being a part of the world. You're not becoming isolated from it. And we live in a culture that divides collectivism from individualism in a way that it's a false duality, you know? Because to be individual is to be in contrast to those around you and how you relate to them, right? Yeah, but you can't relate with them without being original. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, like how, how am I going to take in information from you if I'm not person having an interpretation of that and my own version of it? And so originality is central to our connectedness. And advertising manipulates all of that. It says the best way to join the crowd is to be original, right? It's, it's just constantly selling that thing right this this will make you unique like everybody else that buys the same product you know but they're manipulating this thing which is that there's something really beautiful in modern times which is what i call the sacredness of human personality no what i call sacred originality martin luther king called yeah. it the sacredness of human personality <laughs> off of, uh, king there. i was wondering actually it seems like your philosophy probably has a lot to say about self-actualization which is an area that steve and i both have talked a lot about off the record but how do you find you help people move in that direction. What do you think self-actualization actually looks like? I don't really know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it exists completely. I do know what it's like to feel like I'm alive here on earth. And I do know the elements that allow me to do that. And one is curiosity and the other is imagination. And another is being able to play. And that if those things are in force, I feel engaged and connected to the world. And I think I do because I'm getting close to life, not life in me, not life in you, but life, big L life, you know, we're ecological beings. So there's a life between us, right? That life exists between us. And I'm closer to that when I'm in a playful, imaginative and curious space. I don't know if that answered your question, but. Right. Yeah. And so it's a process of opening rather than kind of psychological inflexibility and closed in this kind of bad faith seriousness. And I like that about you. It comes through in your writing and even in talking to you, there's an element of playfulness. In one of our emails, you said that you wanted to go to a conference and talk about the benefits of alcohol. (laughs) 
<laughs> as an addiction counselor, I love this kind of. This kind I of, don't know this story. Can you recount that, Ross? Oh, I'll tell you this, and then I'm going to tell you what I think play is because I think play is a very serious thing. My idea was alcohol is awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, first of all, like, you know, Steve, we talked about that, like this human made thing where there's all these like cool and interesting flavors and they're subtle and it's like this art form. It's profound. All these beers and all these scotches. And so I just thought it'd be fun to go to a conference and talk about that because it's taken as just this bad thing. Always bad. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And I know it works for some people, not others, the 12 step approach, which brings a lot of seriousness and, and heaviness often. And so this, this kind of unique way of approaching it, here's the benefits. It's respecting staying the same really is. It's kind of treating it with, I guess, seriousness and not saying, oh, that's that doesn't matter. Change is the only option. And so it approaches it with what are the benefits of the thing you're currently doing, which is kind of a part of motivational interviewing, the decisional balance in motivational interviewing. Where you start with the question of what does it do for you? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So throughout history, there's been these things people put in their mouths that change their consciousness. And we've got a bunch of those. Some we call illicit, some we call legitimate. They're all the same. The illicit ones can be used for changing consciousness in a good way. The legitimate ones, by the way, you know, if you're treating psychiatric condition, cause a shorter lifespan, obesity, all these horrible things, but they're the legitimate ones. Yeah, respected. Yeah, they're the respected ones, even though they're profoundly dangerous to people, especially the antipsychotics. I mean, profoundly. So what if we lived a life where we're kind of figuring it out on our own? Which one's the one that works? And we're getting help when one becomes destructive for us. Love that. I love that approach. As an addiction counselor, it's like, okay, so what's the cocaine do for you? Well, I have a really great night playing cards and talking to my friends. And I'm like, okay, sure. That's an option <laughs> for you. And, and I kind of weigh that like, okay, and what else? I mean, is there a different offer on the table? And, and treating it that way as and not like, oh, bad, 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 you did that again. That's not right. There's something powerful in that. And so I don't think it's just a playful thing where you go to a conference, you talk about the benefits of the thing. I think it's some well, function. It's playful in a different way too. It's saying, it's saying, let's create some ply here. Let's not be so strict about an idea. Right. This is yeah, the only make it way playful. forward. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So you guys are speaking the same language, but I guess I still don't find it like a very clear line between why we need to address the benefits of saying the same in order to pursue the benefits of changing. Because if you're making a choice between two things and one is just amazing and the other one is just kind of like the same old, like it seems like it should be easy. So can you more plainly state why addressing the stasis is necessary to enable movement? Oh, yeah. I mean, address it in a compassionate way, in a non-judgmental way you mean or even just like plainly look at it because i think we've talked about in this conversation people usually say that like change is the only option every other option is just bad and when it's put that way it seems like why would you ever even say the same then obviously the the choice is to move but clearly that doesn't work so i'm wondering like what do you see the mechanism is that addressing the benefits of saying the same helps to let go of it why why do you think that's essential yeah Well, I'm getting old enough that if I don't say this now, I'll forget to say it. So let me say it. Yeah, we live in a culture that says you're like this machine and you've got to reach perfection. And if you're not reaching perfection, something's wrong with you. So that change side of it's really pathological too. Like you always got to improve. You always got to get better. That side of it's a mechanistic view. And some of it has to do with capitalism. Like how do we make you stay a good worker? Buy more. How do we get you back to work and, and buy more and be happy and all that? But I just don't think people change without being in a place of compassion. So if I say to you, well, why aren't you changing? What's wrong with you? That's just not going to work, first of all. It's also untrue. You're doing something out of your own self-love. It's not great for you, but it's understandable. This is not you hurting yourself on purpose. This is you trying your best to take care of yourself. 
right? And it's not working for you, but it's very understandable. That gets a person to be able to contemplate their situation. Steve knows this well from motivational interviewing. Like if we come in and say, you know, you got to stop drinking, it's just not going to work, <laughs> yeah. right? Because then you're stopping contemplation. You're stopping the person to be able to say, okay, person can't weigh pros and cons if you remove the cons or you move the pros, right? So put the pros in front of the person. And to answer Phil's question a little bit, if you don't address the staying the same element, as you say in your book, it operates in the background unconsciously and it has more power. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Right, so that makes sense. I guess it's kind of like the Carl Rogers perspective of like unconditional positive regard being a, a core component of therapy because the person's not going to be feeling open to taking risks so they don't feel supported. And if you're saying that you must change, it's implicit in the statement that you are bad as you are and you must change in order to be accepted, which while it does sound like a good motivation for some, it tends to not work as you're pointing out, both of you. <laughs> right, right. I do feel like this common factors research shows that he was really right. You know, that his position is sort of the thing that keeps getting proven over and over again when they do this research. It's not the model. It's something very close to what Carl Rogers was doing that seemed to be the thing that's actually making the therapy work. Which is funny because it sounds so hippy-dippy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean it's wrong, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hip, hippies, hippies are okay. Oh, I'm not judging them. It's just people seem to think like, oh, it's so flowery. There's no way that just patting someone on the head will help them. Right. Patting someone on the head, I wouldn't even describe it as that. <laughs> That's how they disparage it. Yeah, you're right, Bill, though. We don't live in a hippy-dippy behavioral health field anymore. We live in a behavioral health field that says this is the best practice for depression. This is the best practice for anxiety. This is the best practice for substance abuse. In other words, the person coming to you is not a complex human being. They're like a broken machine and you have the right tool. And if that tool doesn't work, something's really wrong with the person because you use that best practice tool. That's not hippy-dippy. That's this kind of mechanic view of the soul. And that's where we've ended up in the psychotherapeutic professions. That's a really awful, dangerous place. It's exactly what these people in 1955 were worried about. They were talking about positivism. They were talking about, you know, psychotherapy leaving the arts and becoming the science and all this kind of stuff. And and sure enough, that's where it's ended up. Yeah. And to bring it back to the seriousness of play, you, you mind expanding on that? Yeah. So I think play is the event where you take something that seems solid and you make it malleable. And you give life to the thing. That's what a child's doing when they play with a toy. They're taking a toy and they're making it something that becomes both inside them and outside them that they feel is both outside their experience and it's also something that's inside their experience. Does that make sense? You're in a middle space when you're playing with a toy. Like your Icarus metaphor, not flying too high or too low because the wings will dissolve and just kind of being in that comfort zone. Yeah, or just you're doing what a natural organism does, which is you're metabolizing the world and you're producing into the world at the same time. And play, when a child is playing, that's what they're doing. And by the way, they're animating the thing that they're doing that with. That toy has a life that they're putting into it. So they're also working on their compassion and their empathy, and they're giving life to that toy. They're learning how to give life to human beings at that point. So there's just this beautiful element to play that's lively, has livingness in it, right? And it also is this process of taking something that feels like you don't have control over it and feeling a little bit of yourself in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it reminds me of a quote from Alan Watts, which was that the mark of the intelligent man is to be paid to play, I think is what he said. So like, I guess that would be what actualization might be more in line with figuring out what your talent and It's like the whole thing we talked about in previous episodes about Aristotle or Ikigai, where it's like what the world needs, what you're good at and what you can make a living doing. And I guess optimally, you'd find it enjoyable and playful so that you can keep adding to the world without constantly draining yourself. Because like when I grew up, my dad would always say stuff like if 
work's not fun. If it was fun, they would call it that. So like, that's why they call it work. And it's like, well, like, is that an inalienable thing of work? Or does must work always be drudgery? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what would this podcast be like if there were you two and me and there was no space of meaning between us? It was you talking, me talking, you were a strict being independent of me and I was a strict being independent of you. We weren't metabolizing what the other person was saying and putting ourselves into the room. What would that be like? You mean like taking turns just speaking? Yeah. And, and then I would sort of say, I don't know what I'd say. I'd repeat back to you what you said. What's happening right now between me and you is play. We're each trying to understand each other. We're trying to communicate. And there's a middle area, what this very famous and important psychoanalyst, D.W. Winnicott, called transitional space, or what anthropologists call liminal space. There's this place between us. And that's where play happens. It happens in this place between us. That's what a child is working on. A child is working on becoming a cultural being, a being that can take in culture, do something with it, be part of culture, and also feel like they can contribute to that culture. That's what play is. And we're doing it all the time. Yeah, and, and this quality is something I see even in counseling sessions. When you're doing it properly, I guess, it, it doesn't come off mechanistic. It's very much this. And it's something that I think a, a more cognitive approach and more standardized cognitive behavioral approaches kind of take away from counseling. And back to my comment before, gaslights people's emotions that they can't trust their emotions. They're like, is that a fact or a feeling? And it's like, well, what's the fact here? And then it's like, well, I can't trust my feelings. I have to think about facts and what's the realistic situation. I'm wondering your take on that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think growth is an improvisational event. It's just an improvisational event. It's an unpredictable improvisational event. And good psychotherapy is an improv where one person in the room is suffering and one person in the room is curious about them. And that's the curative event. You don't know what's going to happen when that person walks in. So each time there's a therapy session, it's a little piece of art of an improvisational piece of art. And you know you've had a good session when you leave and you feel like, I just was involved in something that was a little piece of art, right? Does that make sense to you, Steve? Every day. Yeah. yeah. It's why I love your approach so much. It's it feels laughing right. He knows he knows I'm just in heaven right now. <laughs> yeah, actually one of the things with the mechanistic approach to looking at like the best approach for depression or whatever, I think that maybe it's because it's a more abstract realm. But if we even take that thinking and apply it to just say cars, that doesn't work either because like if we have like a Tesla roll in or a BMW or a Ford, it might not have the same approach every single time anyway. So the fact that we expect people to be more simple than a car is kind of silly. Yeah. And the evidence doesn't show these little techniques work really too. I mean, it's just the word intervention, like we use it all the time. Intervention means to cleave something from something that's passive. So the idea that you're doing an intervention means you're walking in there as kind of the expert and there's a disease like a cancer and your job is to apply your skills on that person and remove that. So thing. like an exorcism. Yeah. Or like surgery. And that's just not what helps people. It's just not because what really helps people is them developing relationship with their suffering. And so them having their own unique relationship with their quote unquote depression, their own unique view of it and their own position towards it. And the only way you can get them to that is by having a relationship with them where you're curious and compassionate and non-judgmental. You're just helping them get to that place where they're having a relationship with it and then deciding how they want to relate to it. How do you distinguish between having a relationship with their disorder and defining themselves by their disorder? Because you do touch on that in the book, too. Oh, yeah. I haven't figured out what this disorder thing is yet. I've been in this field for 30 years. I don't know what it is. Sure. Late, well, I mean, I guess you, you, know what I mean. you know what I mean. I misspoke. My bad. By, by somebody identifying as, as that label. Right. Like, I am my depression or I am, like you said, with your learning disability, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have a learning disability. 
disability. I, I, I don't factory learn. A hundred percent. People who present saying they have ADHD, that's the biggest thing. They've been put into a context where they've been made to feel quite inferior and the teachers are not afraid to to say that, especially back in the day, you know. Yeah, yeah. But Phil, my first book was actually on this thing called patient careerism. And it was actually about what you're describing, which is, and it had the fear of hope stuff in it and the 10 reasons not to change even back then. And it was about this group of people that kept going in the hospital for what they call parasuicidality. You know, they kept making these attempts. And what I was saying is, is that they needed this identity of a broken person because it's the one identity that could kind of hold people's expectations at bay. I didn't mean that negatively, like they were manipulating people. It's because they were in so much pain. And every time that their career was threatened, and the threat to the career was success. The career of patienthood, right? Patienthood. Yes. Every time they had a career crisis, they could go to the hospital and make everybody afraid of them because they were parasuicidal. And everybody would treat them as a thing and diagnose them, and they could get back to that career. Right. And so there's an existential dilemma for those people. And they're trying to solve it by staying in that career, that label. Makes me think of Munchausen syndrome, but that's another label, right? <laughs> yeah. It's okay. The labels are okay. It's just they help us understand certain areas of suffering, but they're often unhelpful in helping the person understand their experience. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's really good for a person to say, I know what this is, and I'm like a lot of other people, and I have a community of people that are suffering from the same thing. You know, it is helpful that way. But you know, there's a thing called personality disorders. I yeah, mean, those are controversial already uh, to begin with, I think. Yeah, but I mean, have you guys met a lot of ordered personalities? I haven't met any ordered personalities. Ordered personalities. <laughs> it depends on how close you get to them. They can appear very normal. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying like an ordered personality would be the greatest pathology ever. Right, as opposed to disordered. Right, right. Or attachment disorder. I would hate a life where my attachments were all ordered. <laughs> what would that be like? Right? So we have these terms that mean nothing because the opposite is worse. You know, but it, it doesn't mean that there aren't these serious events of mind and mood. Very serious, very painful events. In fact, in my wish not to label people, I think I'm taking them more seriously. Yeah, because you're engaging with them as an individual. And I'm seeing what the suffering is. I'm not seeing, oh, this symptom. I'm seeing this must be awful for this individual in relationship to this event. I have some friends that have been struggling with some stuff and I can relate with health stuff. Like you have like a, a pain and you go to the doctor and they check you out and they're like, you're perfect. And you're like, but I've got something going on, like nothing's there. So they can find the label to be helpful, I guess, as you said. But I guess it depends on if they buy into it so much that they don't want to let go of it because that's who they are and how they've interacted with the world. Kind of like, I think it was in the book, you talked about how you cleaned your office. That's what it was. You cleaned your office and you still talked about it in the present tense as though your office was dirty because your self-concept has still not caught up, right? Yeah. Here's the thing, Phil. Medicine, and this is this guy, this French philosopher named Michel Foucault. And Familiar, yeah. <laughs> medicine is a field of examination and observation. That's what it is. And in my mind, there's a lot of beautiful things that come out of that, actually. Like when you go to the doctor, you want them to examine you. You go to an examination room. You don't go to a dialogue discussion room. You go to an examination room. And what you want is some sense that they figured you out and that this expert found something or didn't take behavior and put in that situation. It becomes oppression. I'm the person who decides what behavior is abnormal and sick and what behavior is normal and okay. I get to decide that in this room right now. That becomes oppression. And so when you move the medical model into behavior in the psyche, you're moving it out of an area where it may be just a Foucault wouldn't agree that it's justified in the other forms of medicine, but I do. I think Western medicine has a lot of good things going for it. But when you move it into the mind, to experience, to consciousness. You got what I'm saying. You're handing over the keys to someone to say, that person's normal, that person's right. abnormal. We're just, 
we're putting people in boxes, even though we don't have answers, because clearly we haven't figured out how to optimize even nutrition, let alone psychology and behavior. One thing I remember you saying to me with the first time I called you was about at your organization, I guess I should say, you de-institutionalized doctors, I think was the way you put it. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But let me just respond to your comment about boxes, just to refine that a little bit. It's two boxes. And we are a creature that is highly susceptible to experiences of ostracism and otherness. And the two boxes are, are you acceptable or are you not? Right? There's always little tiny categories, but basically psychiatry decides this group is sick in the head, basically sick in the head. This group is not sick in the head, right? That's a very powerful mechanism in our culture. So this clinical gaze, as Foucault would call it, one of the things that he said that was so remarkable is it doesn't belong to people. It courses through institutions. Yes. It's a little bit like evil. You know, if you, if you have that view of evil, it doesn't necessarily always belong to people. It courses through populists. And so it courses through the professions. And so you go into a psych unit and you'll see a doc doing things that seem oppressive, but you remove that doctor from that psych unit and you give them the ability to do more creative work and they stop being othering of people. And that's what I meant by we deinstitutionalize doctors in my work is that we remove them from this place where they can only see the client for 15 minutes, you know, on a hospital unit where there's all this pressure about liability. You give them a place where they actually get to do it, why they entered the profession and they become humanists. They become humanist psychologists. That's what they become, you know, and, and that's what I meant by that, that we don't want to sit around blaming the people in these institutions. It's the way in which power courses through them that affects people. Right. Oh, I love this. I love how you brought in Foucault as well. <laughs> Phil and I talk about him. Phil's not a big fan, but unlike Eric Fromm and, and the other existential kind of humanistic psychologist perspective, this brings humanism to a, a sociological or institutional level. It's the same discussion we had earlier, but on a broader scale. It is. Yep. Two things that come to mind that if we want to talk about them, we've got like 10 minutes left still. One was I want to know if, how this informs your perspective on parenthood. And the other one is how... I guess the way people see reality as it is, as the only way it can be and are unable to see other systems, because with Foucault, as you just mentioned, it's like the system is that way and people think, well, this is how it must be. And so we kind of put up with these subpar situations as a result. I guess I had two thoughts. One was the parenting, but like I guess I just a long-winded one for Foucault. So like, how do you see this? Like people are quick to either say we need to have like severe crackdowns and enable power to stop these risky things happening. And the other half seems these days to want full-on revolution. What do you make of this with Foucault's perspective there, I guess, what you were just talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if I have a strong opinion about it, changing the world. I don't know if I, my, my brain is, is good at that part of it. I do believe in this research that there's a constant third of the planet of, of human beings. This is Anne Applebaum. There's a constant third of human beings who have a powerful wish for oneness. And that group is the group that always ends up getting upset when there's too much diversity and electing authoritarian leaders. So authoritarianism is always that one third of the populace who start getting freaked out about too much change and they start revolting. I do really believe that. And they've always been there. And authoritarianism is not about getting a leader. It's about feeling like you're one and that diversity is the thing that challenges authoritarianism. Yeah, because it divides us in their perspective. Yeah, yeah. They, they, these are these are a group that really want homogeneity. They need it in their lives. To the Borg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, which gets us back to also the left. The left wing, you know, really loves this collectivism stuff. Oh, that is a strange line I've never thought of. Yeah. And they're also like always worried about individuality as a bad thing on some level, right? Like, oh, that's rugged individuality. You know, they see this libertarianism, like right wing libertarianism. So on the left, there's this attraction to collectivism, too. 
And, and what we want is a combination of both, you know, and we want that in our own lives. I mean, we want that psychologically. I'm a part and I'm a part. We want, I'm a part and I'm a part. Right. You got what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not saying the same word yeah. again. I'm yes. a part and I'm a part. We want those things always at the same time. That is really what makes us feel alive and connected to others and, and sort of connected to life. Right. And that leads back to what you were saying earlier about how we can only be unique or we can only be connected maximally to others when we're maximally unique. Is that way do what you said justice? Yeah. Well, think, think about like a great novel, like the more intricate and unique the character is, the more universal the message. Mm. The more personal, the more universal, as I say. Yeah, the more you can see the intricacies and uniqueness of the character, the more there's a message in it that's universal. And that there's kind of an element, and I think that's really important. And modernity is offering us this chance for more of that. That's why concepts of dignity become important in modernity when they didn't exist 200 years ago. You know, the Declaration of Independence talked about freedom. The UN Declaration talked about human dignity. Human dignity is the ability to be your own person to be able to design your own life in relationship to your own creativity. So it seems inherently against authoritarianism then. Yeah. And, and it threatens authoritarianism. So the more people see people being original, the more they get terrified. That third wants that homogeneic experience. Do you think that stems from the fact that like they may not have squared away some of their internal shame for the things that they want? And when they see someone else living that, they find it kind of is like young shadow. They find the reflection of the thing they don't accept in themselves. Is it part of that, you think? I don't know. I mean, I guess I find it just understandable that we, we come from homogeneic experiences, you know, tribal homogeneic experiences, you know, at a time when homogeneity wasn't dangerous it was it was protective right right so i guess using the fear of hope politically it allows you to have compassion for people we deem as the basket of deplorables or fringe people in canada with unacceptable views which was recently said by our prime minister would you be able to apply this in this context as well yeah i mean we're all struggling right now with the Ukrainian response was a group of people is a, I shouldn't say was, although I'm starting to feel like was horribly, but was a group of people who were willing to have the courage to hope, right? To, to not give up. Climate change is going to require not fearing hope, right? If we put all this energy into this, what will happen if we, if we actually risk hoping? And so I do think that social movements are, are always dealing with this fear of hope. And you think about King again. King was basically an orator about hope. He had a very intricate, sophisticated understanding of what hope was. And he was trying to get people to constantly look at hope as the central thing that was driving their lives. That was driving them their lives towards justice. That is actually something I see on the left these days that I, I kind of fight. We call ourselves mostly center left. But what I've been finding is that they kind of really emphasize the systemic part of things. And that is a valid part. It is a huge component in the way we engage with the world and what we view the world to be. But they go so far sometimes to say, like, basically, you're completely screwed if you were born in a bad environment. And they go so far almost to say that, like, you shouldn't hope being hopeful is bad, like, because the system is going to crush you regardless because you're born in the inner city and everyone hates you for this, your, the color of your skin and all. All that and I feel like while they are trying to help by acknowledging the problems they've got there, it also kind of instills learned hopelessness to a degree. Like it seems integral or at least related to the fear of hope. Like they're fearing that if they were to hope and then not succeed, then it's all worse than if they never tried. Yeah. I mean, the left has a transcendence problem. It does. How do you mean? Well, that ideas of transcendence from your suffering feel dangerous to the left because it means that the suffering, there'll no longer be a mark of oppression if you transcend and have hope. And that's not what previous movements had to them. It was about transcending your position in ways, right? I mean, that, that's what the fight in Nicaragua was about. That's what's happening in Ukraine. That's what the civil rights movement was. It was about how do we transcend this? How do we make the world transcend this? 
And what I just said actually has had some people label me as far right or like libertarian because I'm saying that they shouldn't give up hope and to continue trying. Not that you're guaranteed success. I've had that experience speaking at sociology conferences and doing my PhD in sociology, went to like CSA conferences. And this was when I was starting to gain interest in kind of psychology. And it was kind of like a forbidden thing. I was like, oh, he's getting interest in psychology. Dangerous. Ooh. Like, and to the layperson, they're like, what's wrong with psychology? In a room full of sociological theorists, particularly more of a Foucauldian leaning, then it's something it's like taboo, you know? Right, right, I know. And that's just a bunch of BS because psychology, if it's used right, is this kind of non-gazing form. Right. Oh, that's why they don't like it. It isn't defined as this oppressive thing where you're gazing on people. It's just not. I mean, there's so many beautiful ways in psychotherapy that aren't about looking and gazing. It's like all tools, right? All tools can be abusive weapons or productive for something else. And I think that sometimes people want to label something as bad and we should ban it like capitalism. We only have like one minute left. I don't want to take too much of your time. The last question I had was how do you use this to inform your theory of parenting? Talking about the fear of hope. It's a very big question so maybe I shouldn't ask that. <laughs> I also want to make sure I don't forget something and this I should have said at the beginning which is that social psychologists hope is, is, is a resource. So it's like self-esteem. It's like social support meaning that it provides a resource for you that helps you stay motivated right? It's one of the things that kind of keeps you going in life. So there's lots of research on how it raises your your health. It does all kinds of things for you. That's one of those resources. And fear of hope saying, yeah, but if you fear hope, it gets rid of the benefits of hope. I just want to clarify, that's kind of the main thing we're finding in the research. As far as parenting, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> I, I don't really have an answer for you. I, I do think that we struggle. You know, we struggle with, can I just sit here with the unbearable sense my kid will be disappointed and let it happen if it is because if I let it happen, I've shown them that I believe in them. Instead of stepping in and saying, look, look, I, I don't want you to get disappointed, so we won't do this thing, right? It's that I respect this child enough to stand back and see the disappointment happen, even though it'll be crushing, and live with it, you know? And I do think there's also ways, and I, and I have my son in there, and examples in the book, where we have to watch ourselves, you know? Like, I think I give the example when he would call from college and say, I got an A on a paper, and my next response was, what about in your other classes? And that's raising expectations higher than where he got. Right. And that sort of stuff we have to watch as parents, too. You know, and the art of parenting, I wish I had had better crafted this art is, again, curiosity. You know, I'm I'm interested in what's happening to you. Mm, Discovering who they are. I'm interested in what this experience is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard as a parent, but that seems to be the art. On that note, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been great. We'd have you again for sure. Especially what can you tell us about your new book, actually? What is the title and what's it on this time? It's, uh, I forget the title. It's called, have it right here. It's called uh, Purple Crayons, The Art of Drawing a Life. And it'll be out in November. We'll start advertising it soon. We got the cover and everything. Yeah. Nice. Great. We caught you at a perfect time, it seems. <laughs> Can't wait for it. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. We, we, we love your work and we're looking out for that book. Where can people find you if they're interested in learning more? Well, I got two companies. One is a company called Ellenhorn. So that's ellenhorn.com. And, and there's a bio stuff on there. And the other is called Cardea, which C-A-R-D-E-A dot net. And that's a psychedelic company. So we're building a ketamine space in New York City. And then our first psilocybin retreat is April 21st in Jamaica. And so that's another place where they can look up what I'm doing. And you just reminded me, yes, you are very much in entering the psychedelic space with your therapeutic practice. And so many questions about that as well. I love <laughs> Bring me back. I love it. Love it. Yeah, next time. Next time for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming Thanks again. 
It'll work out. It's fine. Don't worry about those flames or smoke. It's good. <laughs>